You may be seated. Since I told a joke in a sermon back in Advent that some of you still haven't gotten, um, it was that one about the Buddhist monk at the hot dog stand, make me one with everything, remember? Still nothing. Okay. Anyway, since so many of you did not get that joke, I thought it was only fair to admit that I once did not get a joke for more than three years. I think I heard it first in junior high as it was kind of scatological in nature. Not that, there's any, not that I stopped appreciating this kind of humor, there was just a lot of additional pressure to enjoy it in the seventh grade, right? So when Brian Wilt told us this joke, I laughed right along with everybody else. Pretty convincingly, I'd like to think. But it wasn't until more than three years later, after we'd studied genetics in Mr. Nation's biology class, that the punchline finally made sense to me. And I had an epiphany, a flash of insight. There was no shaft of light in the hay mow, but I finally got the joke. Right, it's a hereditary disease. Runs in your genes. Genes, genes. Hilarious. Anyway, I'm just sorry Amber couldn't add this to her epiphany sermon last week. But I guess I got lucky. Because in those three years of my secret incomprehension, nobody ever ex- ex- pushed me to explain what, why the joke was funny. And what would people have thought of me if they found out what I did not know. I have a friend who says, you know, all I really care about is my husband, my dog, and what everybody else thinks of me. Now that's a joke I get completely. This is a burden I understand. Do any of you? Teach us to care and not to care, T.S. Eliot once prayed in a poem. Teach us to sit still. Learning what to care about and what not to care about still strikes me as the spiritual work of a lifetime for some of us. Those moments of insecurity, silly ones and the profound ones, they remind us that we do care about what other people think of us. And we should to a certain extent. If you don't care at all, you're a sociopath, which is not a mark of spiritual enlightenment. But we also have to find ways to wriggle free of the expectations and the opinions of the people around us, don't we? We can't only be what other people think of us, even people who love us. We're not quite a self if we are. Teach us to care and not to care is what I find myself asking Jesus today. Teach us to sit still. Jesus begins his ministry in Luke with an important series of experiences, right? It begins with that baptism in the Jordan River and the message from the heavens, You are my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. But as soon as Jesus hears that he is loved without qualification by God, as soon as his true identity is established, he's led immediately off into the wilderness where that identity will be put to test. The temptations, they're matters for other sermons. But it's worth noting here that Jesus is tempted to prove himself in terms of influence over the natural world by turning stones into bread. He's tempted to prove his identity in terms of power and influence over other people as a ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. And in that third temptation, if you think about it, he's actually asked to prove who he is by exerting a kind of influence over God. Throw yourself off the temple, 
and get God to send angels to catch you, he's told. Prove yourself in your answered prayers. Jesus resists these temptations in the wilderness. But what I wonder today is if there was a fourth temptation in going back home. Because your hometown is where you first learned how to respond to the world, is it not? Or rather, your hometown is where the world first began responding to you. And we begin to learn who we are in all these responses. Report cards and state fair ribbons and demerits and traffic fines, raises and pink slips and trophies and rounds of applause or scowls and boos. The hometown is where we first get the feedback we may spend the rest of our lives trying to get right. How well, you do, how well do you do at producing bread for your family or at acquiring power and influence in your little realm of control? How responsive, some might even ask, is God to your prayers? Do you tend to be caught when you fall or do you just hit the ground with a thud? Answer these questions for us and we'll tell you who you are. So when Jesus gets home, he knows pretty much what everybody's thinking. There's a saying back in Nazareth, apparently, doctor, cure yourself, which I think means, well, you may have gone off to med school in Capernaum and gotten a fancy diploma to hang on the wall, but we knew you way back when. We know your people. Show us your own healed and happy life, and maybe then we'll believe the healing stories we've started to hear. But Jesus resists the temptation, now a fourth time, to have his identity defined on the world's terms. He won't play along, and it angers all the hometown folk. So they lead him off to the edge of that cliff to teach him a lesson. But we're told Jesus walks through the middle of the crowd untouched. He slips from their grasp just as he slips through their expectations and their standards for what makes up a respectable life. He's been declared God's beloved, and he will not settle for any other measure of self-worth. The story is relevant to us, I think, because what Jesus slips through is precisely what you and I get caught in from the earliest moments of our lives. We accept the hometown terms for what matters. And so we begin constructing selves we think will make the hometown people proud. What's wrong with a self that's built like that? What's wrong is that any self we construct to prove that we matter is false. Thomas Merton put it like this. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. This is an astonishing thought. That the self the world consistently asks me to prove and project is unreal. It's an illusion. In fact, it's so unreal that God doesn't even know the false self I project because God knows only what is real. God knows only God's beloved. Merton goes on. All sin from the, starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, 
for power, honor, knowledge, and love to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. Do you recognize this process? I wish I could say I didn't, but I do. All of us do, I think, if we're honest. Sin begins in this process of wrapping ourselves in what the world affirms rather than resting on our belovedness by God. But Jesus shows us we can learn to slip free of all that. We can learn to trust in our belovedness just a little more over time. And in doing so, maybe he can teach us to care and not to care. Maybe he will teach us how to sit still. You see, Jesus did care. He cared deeply for the world. He just didn't much care what the world thought of him. He cared about our brokenness and our estrangement from one another, and he wanted to heal it. He cared so deeply that he would rather lose his own life if saving it meant putting forth the false self the world kept asking him for. And Jesus insisted that you and I can learn to do the same. Not perfectly. I'm afraid I'll never be entirely free of the need to impress all of you. I'll never be entirely free of the need to show you my importance in terms of bread and influence and a spiritual life that gets visible results. But I do believe together we can slip a little more from the world's grasp over time. I believe we can slip from it at this table. Because in this Eucharist, this thanksgiving for that defining belovedness at the heart of our lives we can begin to let go of all the hometown expectations and remind one another that our truest selves are never the ones we have to prove. In the end, we may find that our insecurities are gifts. The joke we didn't get, the affirmation we can't quite attract, the failure we can't fake our way out of, these may be the openings in our bandages that we need remember that we do have a self worth giving away to the world. Openings not into emptiness, but into belovedness. Openings, perhaps, into a prayer of our own that Jesus teaches to care and not to care. That he teaches to sit still in his love.